Hello and welcome to the podcast, The Scriptures Are Real. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have made them become real to us because we think that helps us draw more power out of them and we need all the help we can get. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and I'm so happy to have as my guest today uh, a former teacher, I consider him a, a mentor of mine, uh, Dr. Paul Hoskison, uh, who uh, taught, I don't know for how many years, but a lot of years uh, in the same department. I'm now in the ancient scripture department of BYU. When I got was fresh off my mission and I took a Book of Mormon class at uh, BYU, Dr. Hoskison was my teacher, and he opened up my eyes to uh, when you read carefully and slowly in the scriptures. And he did this by the means of quizzes. But uh, it, those quizzes made you read carefully and slowly, and it just uh, opened up my eyes to ways to change the scriptures and or read the scriptures. And then uh, uh, he helped me with my my master's thesis, and actually was uh, somewhat instrumental into my uh, going into Egyptology and so on. And uh, and then I had the pleasure of of teaching uh, alongside him uh, for a while, and just uh, someone whom I really respect and admire, uh, both as a scholar and a, and a, just a kind, gentle gentleman. So thank you and welcome, Dr. Hoskinson or Paul. Uh, what else should we know about you? Well, thank you. I'm, I'm pleased to be here and to talk about the Old Testament. It's one of my favorite books. <clears throat> People would ask me what was my favorite scripture. I, you know, I taught all of the scriptures in the ancient scripture department, and, and the answer always was whatever book I was teaching that semester. Yeah. And and. So every three years, the Old Testament was my favorite book, and it's still one of my favorite books. I love the way it's written, and I love what they're saying in there. I was challenged when I was in graduate school by my mentor, Cyrus Gordon. He said, if you ever really want to learn Hebrew, you need to read the Old Testament cover to cover. I took that challenge. It took me quite a while to do it. And I'm not sure I understood everything in the book, but um, I did... I gain a real appreciation and a love for the Hebrew Old Testament. Now, with that said, I love the King James translation too. It's really a good translation. Yeah. If we knew how to speak King James English still. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a fairly accurate and wonderful translation. And I just, I love to hear the King James English. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also think that they've, They've done a great job of being as faithful to the Hebrew text as, as you can be without becoming ridiculous and uh, and preserving some of the poetic power of the language that's in there. Uh, but as you said, sometimes we have to work hard to to recognize our own English. So, yeah. Yes. In fact, there was one word in these three books today that we're going to discuss. I had never, ever seen in my life in English. I, I had to look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary to find out what right. it meant. Oh, but now, now I'll have to find out what that word was. I, I'm sure you'll tell us as we go. But Nah, forget it. It's not <laughs> important. Well, Paul, I'm, I'm hoping that you'll take us through these books and talk about the things that you uh, that really jump out to you and that, that uh, really make them come to life for you and that you'd like us to talk about. But before you do that, maybe we can just give a quick bullet point uh, list of the highlights of what we're going to talk about. We're going to try and and uh, talk about the history and the setting for uh, the whole Old Testament and, and the stories that, that give us an understanding of why these prophets are prophesying when they are. For each of them, we'll talk about who they are, when we think they prophesied. Uh, we'll talk about the meanings of their names. 
And then there's a lot of destruction that they talk about. So we're going to touch lightly on that destruction, but we're going to uh, talk about why destruction, how destruction, but mostly we'll talk about how God uh, saves. We're going to uh, talk, highlight a number of times that these prophets have restoration ideas that come to us, how they teach us about Christ uh, and how they teach us about the nature of God and his mercy and the ability that we have to trust in him. So with that, why don't you, you lead us in, Paul? These uh, three books are, are probably the smallest three books. In fact, I think Habakkuk is the smallest book in the Old Testament. Uh, uh, as far as or, words, or Obadiah, you know, Obadiah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it has the fewest number of words in the Hebrew text of any other Old Testament book. Oh, wow. I did not know uh, that. And, and there are only three chapters in each of them, so we can zip through them really fast. But I think there's some passages we want to linger on in there. But I want to set the stage by saying that um, it's easier to notice in these three books that these prophets were not just prophets to Israel. No. They were prophets to all of the world. And that's true of all the other prophets in the Old Testament. But here, I think we can see it more clearly in these three books because they spend a lot of time talking about countries other than Israel and, and the Jewish people. We get lots of comments about other countries and places and things that are going to happen. It's a reminder that, that the Lord's prophet is the prophet for the whole world. Yeah. And I think that's very important that we realize today that our prophet he is the prophet for the whole world. He is legally the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And therefore, legally, he's he has that responsibility. But the Lord's response that reality requires that he's the prophet for all of the world, not just for the Latter-day Saints. That's well said. I think that comes out in these three books. Yeah. <clears throat> I think we ought to set the stage, too, for the setting of these three books. It's an interesting age in the, in the history of the world, the, uh, the sixth and seventh centuries. And a lot of things are going on in, in the world at this time. It's an international age, just like it is today in this world. People can travel all over the place. They were doing that back in those days, too. And, and one sign of this is just a minor thing. Uh, you get, um, we don't know where Zephaniah was buried. Uh, Habakkuk uh, has, uh, there are two countries that claim his burial spot. Uh, both Israel and uh, Iran. And you can go to both of them and and uh, be told that's where Habakkuk was buried. So not only was Habakkuk the Israeli prophet, but he may have been actually buried in, in, in Iran, Persia in those days. Nahum, the third one that we're talking about today, uh, his traditional burial spot is in northern Iraq, not in Israel. And and that, that just is a little hint about the international nature of those times, that these prophets were not all buried in Israel and lived their whole life there. They're all over the map in those days, actually. Uh, and I'm so grateful that we have that because we get some wonderful insights into what the world was like back in those days. I want to go through a few dates in here, boring things. So please hang with me as we go through these boring things. I'll just set the stage for... Uh, what we're going to talk about with these prophets and why they say some of the things that they say. I'm going to start around 750 BC. That's uh, in, uh, about the time, uh, 
about the close of Isaiah. Isaiah writes a little bit before that, maybe perhaps or maybe a little afterwards. But it's in 730, the 730s, around 734 BC, that the northern, the first three northern tribes of the, of the house of Israel are carried away captive by the Assyrians, the ones up uh, around the north shore of Galilee. Uh, and that's just the beginning of the, of the Assyrian conquest of the area. We have to say that the Assyrians are somewhat latecomers to, to the world stage. Uh, they began around 900 AD or BC, sorry, to uh, expand and to conquer their countries around them. It took them till about seven thirties, like I said, to um, really get engaged with the uh, House of Israel when they took the, the northern three tribes. In 721, and we've learned this, I'm sure, from your other blogs, that uh, uh, Jerusalem was uh, Samaria was was captured. And the northerners were taken away, the, north, the rest of the northern kingdom, the other uh, um, seven tribes were taken away captive to Assyria. Now, the Assyrian foreign policy was that Jews take these people that rebelled against them and resettle them in areas where uh, they needed some more population. The, it was a double attempt, number one, to, to break up any coalitions that were formed against Assyria by moving the people around. And it meant also that if you were taken away, somebody else was moved into your old home. And so it was nearly impossible to go home again and during from the Assyrian captivity. Uh, <clears throat> in 701, Samaria that had been subservient to the Assyrians, uh, not Samaria, sorry, I'm getting my places mixed up. Jerusalem uh, had been subservient to the Assyrians. And in 701, they rebelled against the Assyrians. And the Assyrians came down on Jerusalem and besieged the whole country, captured every city in the country except Jerusalem. We all know the story of that. We're not here to talk about that part of the history. But that's when uh, the first people went in, from Jerusalem anyway, went into a minor uh, Assyrian captivity. <clears throat> Things went along well in Israel for a little while because Manasseh, one of the kings after that 701 uh, siege of Jerusalem, uh, was subservient to the Assyrians the whole time and, and catered to them and had relative peace. But according to the Bible, he was one of the worst kings ever in, 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 uh, in Judea and you know, filled the streets of Jerusalem with blood. And everybody hated the Assyrians at the time period, or most of them anyway. And so uh, Babylon, that had been under the thumb of the Assyrians for 200 years or plus, on and off, and the Persians and the Medes, that had been somewhat under the thumb of the Assyrians, got together and formed a coalition to destroy Assyria. And this is what is explained in these three books and other places, too, of course, in the Old Testament, that Assyria is going to be destroyed by the Babylonians, by the Medes, and by the Persians. That uh, started in 615 with the fall of Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrians. The remnants of the Assyrian Empire fled west and settled in a place called Carchemish. It's uh, noted in the Bible. And there was their last stand. And in 609, the Assyrians were defeated totally through this Babylonian, Median, and Persian coalition. This is the time when... Um, 
one of the last kings of the, of the Judea of the Jews was killed in opposing the Egyptians when they came up to help the Assyrians. In fact, the Egyptians were the were probably the only captured people of the uh, of the Assyrians who stood by them and went to help them in their effort to stave off the Babylonians, Medes, and Persians. It was at that time that in 605 that Babylon, after taking over all of the territory that used to be um, Assyrian, asserted its dominance over Jerusalem. And so we'll read about that here too in these three uh, books. In 605, the people in Jerusalem rebelled a little bit against the Babylonians and the Babylonians came down on them and um, they caved in in Jerusalem. They gave in to the Babylonians and that started the first wave of Babylonian exiles that are mentioned to here in these three books. And they went along nicely for a couple of years, so approximately uh, eight years, seven years. And they rebelled again against them. This is in the days of Zedekiah, the days of Lehi and Nephi. And this time it was a serious rebellion and the Babylonians came down on them fairly hard. And um, Jerusalem though was spared this time also, as it had been by the, with the Assyrians. But this created the second wave of Babylonian exiles into into Babylon. And we're going to talk about that in a minute in the book of Habakkuk. It's mentioned there. Then they installed a king who was supposed to be loyal to the Babylonians, and he rebelled again under pressure from the Egyptianizers. And, they and the Babylonians came a third time, and this time they destroyed Babylon and took a third wave of Babylonians uh, of, of, uh, into Babylonian captivity. Then the Babylonians got their comeuppance, as these three books mention, uh, because the Syrians, the, the Persians and the Medes decided they didn't want to have a coalition. They're not going to share this land with the Babylonians. So the Persians and the Medes, this time under the Persians, because the Persians had to become the dominant tribe in the Iranian plateau. So it's the Persians and the Medes this time who who put an end to Babylon and capture the city of Babylon without firing an arrow, practically. they, According to the Greek legend of the story, they diverted the river, uh, the river into Babylon that went through Babylon. Babylonians, by the way, had, had uh, built fortifications and the city was supposed to be impregnable and they'd actually put iron grates in the river too, so you couldn't just swim through the river into Babylon. But apparently the uh, Persians were able to divert the river, and so their troops were, according to the Greek legend, were able to walk into Babylon practically on dry ground through the riverbeds and get through the iron grates. And Babylon fell with all, almost without a single shot being fired. That's in five, 39. The next year, the Persians let the Babylonian captives go home. And because it was the Babylonian policy to gather all the peoples into Babylon, there was still a vacuum back home. The Jews could return. And they began trickling home in around 538. And in 16, so they, uh, they got serious about rebuilding the temple and eventually completed what's called the, uh, the second temple. 
And that lasted with some renovations by Herod for another 500 years. The Persians got their comeuppance too, of course, because 200 years later, approximately, Alexander the Great defeated all of them. And Greece, under Alexander the Great, uh, inherited everything that was Persian, including Jerusalem. Now, that's a little bit of the background. It's an international age, as I said. But I, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about what's going on in, this, in the world at this time. Uh, Babylon, Babylon was an ancient country and was noted for its learning and math and sci science, etc. Assyria was a little more uh, into um, um, trade and, and such, and a little more militaristic than the Babylonians, at least in the time period that we're talking about. <clears throat> the uh, Phoenicia at this time was sailing most, a lot of the world. We know they made it around Africa. We know they made it to England. There is some talk recently in some of the literature that they actually made it as far as Iceland and maybe a little further west from Iceland. So it's an international era that we're in. And since I don't know anything about this, uh, Carrie, in this 200 year period, what's happening in Egypt? Their okay. next door neighbor. So during the, the which exact 200 year period are we talking about? The, yeah, the... say 500 to 700, or even yeah. 450 to 700. So uh, 500 BC to 700 BC, right? Or 700 BC to 500. Um, that's exactly the period where you have, um, to begin with, you have the, the Ethiopian is what it's called in the Bible. Kushite uh, dynasty is controlling them. And, and they're the ones that come to the aid of Hezekiah. Uh, and then the Assyrians get down into Egypt and they they get they chase out the the Ethiopians and they put on really uh, some different uh, groups of Libyans and other people that had settled in that northern part. They put some of them on the throne, and that's part of why they're going to continue to aid uh, the the Assyrians. It's because this is a group who aren't really fully Egyptian, and they owe their being kings to the Assyrians. So they stay uh, they stay fairly closely allied with them. And then we enter into what we will often call the, the uh, an intermediate period. And, and it's a period where there's a lot of fragmentation and Egypt isn't uh, particularly strong. And um, uh, and they're not, uh, not, not achieving a lot. And then the Persians take them over. And then the Greeks take them over. So uh, that's kind of the, the rough thing of what's going on uh, in, in Persian history. I mean, in Egyptian history. So Egypt was really never a major military power, say, after 700 BC. They did make incursions into Palestine, several yeah. of the pharaohs did, but it was never a real threat, apparently. No, the, the closest they came was uh, to, to being kind of a, a, the second punch of the uh, Syrian army as a threat. But since the Babylonians defeated them at that time, they didn't really become a threat. Yes, and and therefore Egypt was never really able to help the pro-Egyptian party in Jerusalem to rebel against the Babylonians. It yeah. was a false hope that they had in this once powerful nation, but by that time, I don't want to say helpless, but um, it didn't have a lot of military strength. No, very, very fragmented and, and not capable of reaching far outside of themselves. 
And I think that's one of the reasons why we don't get a lot about Egypt in these three books, because the major powers at this time were first the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. And, and later on, of course, the Persians and the Medes. And that's where the emphasis is in these three books on those areas in yeah. the ancient Near East outside of outside of Egypt. Well, uh, I wanted to go a little bit further afield than that, too. It's during this period, around, around 500 BC, when Rome converts from a kingdom to a what's called a republic. Mm -hmm. So this is just the beginning period of the Roman Republic, around 500 BC. Greece, of course, doesn't really take off for a little while, that is, as far as the military power for another 200 years after that 500 uh, BC. But I also want to mention other things in the world that are going on at the time. Both Buddha and Confucius and Socrates, they're at the end of this period that we're talking about. They're, they're, they're not in the period when of, of the three books that we're talking about, but about 100 years later. So the world is, is in commotion at this time, all over the world. These yeah. wonderful people that are going to have such a strong influence on the rest of history, uh, like Buddha and Confucius and Socrates and Alexander the Great, of course, a little bit later. Uh, this is a real international period. Things are going on here. And the prophets here are talking to the whole world. And I just find that so exciting to listen to them. I want to, um, to point out that this is nothing new, too. Uh, We've all lived through uh, the three main proclamations in our own time. I hope I'm getting all of them. I only counted three in a quick search of my memory. The family of proclamation to the world, very much like what we get in these three books here. It's a proclamation. They are writing proclamations to the world, not just the house of Israel. We also have a living Christ, the testimony of the apostles about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a proclamation to the world. We get the restoration of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ also in our lifetimes and other ones. But, you know, it's nothing it's it's nothing revolutionary to get these proclamations in our lifetime. In 1845, there was a first presidency proclamation to the world. It's really quite astounding when you read it. It's it reads quite a bit like these three books that we're reading here in the Old Testament, not in the details, but in the thrust of, of the matter. And then, of course. Doctrine and Covenants section one is a proclamation to the world. It's addressed to the members of the church, but it goes on to address the whole world. It says, wake up, world. You know, the gospel's here. It's time for you to get in line. Yeah. Which is exactly <laughs> what uh, what Nahum and Habakkuk and um, Zephaniah are telling the world. Wake up, get in line, and things aren't going to go so bad, if you will. They don't, and things do go bad. But let's jump into the book itself. Okay. Let's go into Nahum. He's right around the time of Jeremiah. Some people put him early, early, uh, early on in Jeremiah, a little before Jeremiah, maybe. Some of them put him a little bit later. But um, uh, his testimony is great, and he is a real mouthpiece for the Lord. I want to say something in each case about what the name means. Nahum means. Um, regret, or also comfort. And he is, offers both of them in his little sermon there. Uh, for instance, in, in the whole of chapter one is about how the Lord is powerful and the evil one will be destroyed. That's, that's good news for all of us. I think we can all take that to heart today. 
things may look bad. They've always looked bad, usually in the world. But the Lord is there, and we should be optimistic because the Lord's in charge. I mentioned earlier uh, Nahum, uh, but let's look at chapter 1, verse 15, uh, because we have there a summary, actually, of Babylonian foreign policy. I probably need to get on my glasses to read verse 15. This is speaking about Babylon in verse 15. Behold, upon the mountains of the feet of... Oh, no, this is, some, this is something even better than that. Oh, I'm glad I saw that. Um, this is actually, Nahum has a quote here that's very similar to Isaiah. Mm -hmm. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, is where we get the word in Hebrew for Nauvoo, uh, where it says in the King James, it says, how beautiful. The word beautiful there in, in Isaiah 52, 7 is the word Nauvoo. Here we have Nahum. I don't know if he's quoting Isaiah for, uh, or is Isaiah quoting Nahum. But we have here this famous statement that is, that is almost word for word, except for the first two words, the same as in Isaiah 52, 7. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publishes peace. We know from our studies of the Old Testament, Isaiah, and the Book of Mormon, that it's talking about the Savior and the good news that the Savior brings and how beautiful upon the mountain are all those heralds that talk about the restoration of the gospel, both in Book of Mormon days and in our day, and here with Nahum, that it's going to happen. There is going to be a restoration. And how beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of those who do bring that restoration. So there's this little glimmer of hope here in Nahum about the history of the world. Things are pretty gloomy in his day. Things are going downhill fast, and they're going downhill badly. And a lot of people are suffering and dying. But the Savior is still going to come. And how beautiful upon the mountain are his feet here in Nahum. I love how some of these prophets either borrow from each other or um, perhaps there's a common source where they both get their information. Yeah. In chapter 2 of Nahum. Before we go to chapter 2, could I just share one verse uh, that I really love from chapter 1? Is that, that all right also? Yeah. Um, and this is just, uh, I, I mean, chapter one, I mean, he is, he's, he's prophesying that all sorts of bad stuff's going to happen in Nineveh. He's all sorts of <laughs> doom and gloom uh, and showing the power of God. That's a, a wonderful thing. But but just before he gets into how powerful God is and all the bad things he's going to do, in verse three, he, he says this, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Then he'll go on to say that that he's not going to acquit the wicked and so on. Like he's, he's going to come out in judgment against the wicked but i love that phrase he, he is we're going to read about his anger for the rest of this book really uh with a couple little highlights like you said where he publishes peace and so on but um but it, it's not because that's what he's looking to do or be he's not looking to be angry this anger has been a long time in building because he's been trying to get them to repent and this nahum's part of what he, he's part of the group that's trying to get them to repent and it's only that they won't listen to that, that then the anger will come. But the thing we have to be aware of, he's he's great in power. So if we're if we're getting the covenant blessings, then uh, the, the great in power works well for us. If we're not uh, getting in line, as you said, then his great power doesn't work well for us. And so I, I just that's probably my favorite verse in Nahum. So let's keep going on. But I, I just wanted to point that one out. I love that one. So. 
Well, in conjunction with that, verse 7, I think it is, uh, sums up a lot of the Old Testament. Yeah. That is, the Lord is, is loving and kind and merciful and long-suffering. He doesn't use those words here, but in verse 7, uh, as you can tell from the King James uh, lettering there, it, it reads, Jehovah is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. Yeah, and all these troubled times we're going to have here in the, these books, Jehovah is there to help us and to bless us. He knoweth them that trust in him. If you're trusting in him, he's there, uh, a stronghold in the day of trouble. Yeah, that's comforting, uh, I, isn't it? It is, because um, maybe times are going to get worse. I don't know. It doesn't matter. If you trust in the Lord, uh, it's still going to be your best day ever. Yeah. <laughs> when you're trusting in the Lord. Well, we get into some of the nasty things that are going to happen in chapter two, especially with Assyria, how it's going to fall and be destroyed. I don't want to be a, talk about doom and gloom there either. And but <clears throat> and people can read that and draw their own conclusions about how nasty it's going to get for Assyria. It really did get nasty. I mean, uh, the siege of, of of Nineveh lasted about three years, uh, from six twelve to uh, six fifteen to six twelve, and I'm sure things went really downhill a long ways during those yeah. three years of the siege of Nineveh. And in chapter three, we get. Uh, all of the sins and evil that uh, Assyria committed. So it's not that the Lord is angry for Assyria doing what they did to um, uh, to to Israel and and Judah. It's that Assyria itself uh, has has proven worthy of its own destruction. Uh, we sometimes forget that um, the Lord almost. I, I can't think of a single instance where the Lord calls on His chosen people to carry out some kind of a punishment. He usually just backs off and says, all right, I'm not going to be there to help and, and save you anymore. Yeah. And the natural consequences come along. And that's what happened with Assyria. It isn't that the Lord destroyed Assyria. He just let all the natural consequences that have been building up take over and destroy Assyria. Uh, this is it, it, we, we don't talk about that very much because uh, it, it's not one of the things that... Uh, it's it's nice to know that the Lord's going to wipe things out, and we don't have to do it. The Book of Mormon in in Mormon chapter four verse five says it's it's by the wicked that the wicked are punished. Yeah, and we uh, see it again and again in every book of Scripture. Yes, the the righteous don't have to punish anybody. The Lord will take care of it by letting the wicked take care yeah. of his of his uh, uh, problems there. Yeah, and um, they did. I, the wicked Babylonians and Persians did. Uh, took care of the more wicked Assyrians. Yeah. And eventually the Greeks would take care of the more wicked Persians. Never mind. I, I think that's the, the kind of the, the state of a fallen world, right? There's always going exactly. to be something bad happening unless God is stopping it from happening. Now, sometimes he does describe himself as saying, I'm going to call the Assyrians in. I'm going to call the Babylonians in. But in other places, he says, yeah, actually, I'm I'm just letting this roll. Um, I, I don't think that's his exact word. But um, but I, I think you're right that basically when he isn't protecting, the fallen world takes its course and, and you're going to be in trouble. When you do what I say, you have a promise. And if you don't, you have no promise. Yeah. Yeah. He's in charge. Things are going to work out. I don't know how. And sometimes it'll take some effort on our hand, on our part, to help things work out for the righteous. But uh, it's not the righteous who have to worry about punishing the wicked. Yeah. Let's go to Habakkuk now. Okay. It's a wonderful, 
it's what a strange name. It it it, uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it uh, nobody really knows exactly where it's from or what it means. There are a lot of good guesses. For one, it, there's a wonderful Hebrew verb that means to embrace. Yeah, and that may be what it's where it comes from too. Uh, he's also about the same time as uh, uh, as Nahum, either early in the uh, ministry of Jeremiah or late in the ministry of Jeremiah. And it's <clears throat> and, and he is the one who talks about Babylon destroying Assyria in chapter one, verses five through eleven. By the way, uh, we should read a couple of verses there just to get some of the vocabulary down. I'll begin in verse five. Behold, ye among the heathen, and regard and wonder marvelously. For I will work a work in your days that you will not believe, though it be told you. He's going to tell them that, that Assyria, that has been so powerful and so mean-spirited, is going to be destroyed. Who's going to believe that? Yeah. Well, six. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans. And I need to say something a little bit about the Chaldeans. Uh, <coughs> The Babylonians in this time period were actually uh, uh, ruled by one of the uh, um, tribes in southern Mesopotamia called the Chaldeans. And they were uh, originally probably from um, more further up north and further west, but they had settled down there sometime near the beginning of the Iron Age. And Nebuchadnezzar and his father before him were from this tribe of the Chaldeans. And had been subject to the, ba the Babylonians as far as their own Babylonian organization goes. But eventually, Nebuchadnezzar's father um, uh, took over Nebuch the Babylonian Empire, basically. And that's why the Babylonians are called Chaldeans, because they're being led by this southern Mesopotamian tribe called the Chaldeans. So we don't want to get them confused with the Chaldeans of Abraham's day, which is 1,500 years earlier. And there's some question about where they came from too. People have written articles on, 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 on many sides of the question. But these Chaldeans are not, they may be related to the Chaldeans in the book of Abraham, but 1,500 years later. Yeah. So what yeah, so it they, says if, here, if I will write- the same group, place. they've moved by then, right? If it's the same same group that, that they've migrated, which we know that these Chaldeans do migrate so yeah yes yeah um they're not mentioned in southern mesopotamia before the iron age the chaldeans right. sometime at the beginning of the iron age they apparently moved in from northern mesopotamia anyway there's that that's one of those those questions that we don't have answers to yet so i just want to point out when it says for lo i raise up the chaldeans it really is the babylonians that he's talking about there that bitter and hasty nation which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They're going to move in and take over everything that was Assyrian in Mesopotamia. Yeah. In this coalition between the uh, the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians, uh, they, they drew a line kind of in the sand. Everything in the northern part of what had been Assyria went to the um, Medes and the Persians. Everything in the southern part went to the Babylonians. So the Babylonians, <clears throat> with the defeat of the Assyrians, basically took over uh, what is now called Mesopotamia and, and, and the areas to the west of it too, but not up in the north. That figures in the, um, the exile and, and where the uh, 10 tribes went 
uh, when they went into exile uh, during the Assyrian period. Well, in chapter two, we get uh, some of the sins uh, uh, that are mentioned that are leading to the Assyrian destruction. But I want to mention something else here. There are little gems every once in a while here in these three books. In chapter two, it gives this list of the sins, but, but I want you to look at, at verse four. There's this little gem that doesn't seem to say a whole lot, but to me, it, it, it it's the one of the essences of the gospel here. Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him. That is, the soul of the Assyrian kingdom is not upright. He's, he's not just. But then this phrase, but the just shall live by his faith. That is, people, people are supposed to live by their faith in God. And, and the, the Assyrians are, are really, actually, they're not even living by their own, the faith of their own pagan deities. This verse is so uh, important in the study of the gospel that it's quoted three times in the New Testament. We live by faith. This is, uh, this is one of the examples of, of how the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we understand it today through the New Testament, was alive and well back in those days. We live by faith. That's Habakkuk. First one to mm -hmm. say it, that we know of anyway. <clears throat> Well, in verse 5, this is one I wanted to mention earlier, and I, I messed up on it. On it's chapter 2, verse 5. Yea, I'm going to uh, make comments as I read verse 5. They also, because Babylon, or no, because Assyria transgresseth with wine, and Assyria is a proud man, largest his desire, who enlarges his desire as hell, and is also, and as death, and cannot be satisfied. Assyria can't be satisfied. But gathereth unto him all him all nations, and heapeth unto him all people. That is, the Babylonians, like the Assyrians, had had this insatiable appetite for conquering and gathering money and wealth, etc., to their homeland. But here it's stated very carefully that one of the differences between the Babylonians and Assyrians, the Babylonians gathered everybody into Babylon, the area around Babylon. All of the captured peoples went to settlements close to Babylon, probably so the Babylonians could keep an eye on them, but also because the Babylonians took advantage of all the smart people in the countries that they captured. As we know that, uh, especially because of the book of Daniel. Mm -hmm. Daniel is a man that first cohort who was hauled off to Babylon because he was capable and smart. And they took these people and educated them and used them in the service of the Babylonian Empire. Uh, and that is all summarized there by Habakkuk in, in chapter 2, verse 5. He tried to gather together the best of the whole world and use it for the benefit of the Babylonian kingdom. And in many ways, the Babylonians were very successful in this because the Babylonians, through this process, gained a reputation throughout all of the ancient world for their science and their art and their philosophy. And in fact, the name Chaldean, another name for the Babylonians, uh, became almost synonymous in Rome with smart, wise people. Mm -hmm. That's Habakkuk. Now let's talk a little bit about what is going on there too. In chapter two, verse 18, I love this verse because it, <laughs> he's making fun of them. And, uh, 
I, I love satire. And this is a great place. There's a lot of satire in the Old Testament that we miss, unfortunately. It's really fun when you catch it. What profiteth the graven image, talking about those who make the idols that the Babylonians were, and everybody in the world at the time were, were doing except the, the Israelites. Well, the Israelites made them too, but that's one of the reasons they were going into captivity because they were making idols too. Uh, what profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven it? What is If you're making an idol, what benefit do you get from that? Well, I suppose the benefit you might get is you can sell it to a, a wealthy um, a patron and get a lot of money for it. But yeah. what, what, what we, we learned that is often the motive uh, from other sources. But yeah. Yes. Uh, it, the molten image and a teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusteth therein to make dumb idols. Now notice the next verse. Woe unto him that saith to the wood, awake, to the dumb stone, arise, it shall teach. We do actually have Babylonian incantations that were used to initiate one of these graven images into the temple precinct and to serve as the, the deity in the, in the, the temple. Uh, and, they, and they talk about opening the mouth and breathing, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. these wonderful incantations. So Habakkuk here is aware of these things that are going on in Babylon, and he's really making fun of them, and I love that. He said, Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in the midst of it. Well, yeah, you carve this thing out of stone or wood, and you overlay it with gold and silver. It doesn't breathe. It can't hear. It doesn't talk. And then the kicker. But Jehovah is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. He is the only God who speaks, who has breath, and, and who will give you the right answers and make you smart. Uh, well, that's Habakkuk. Let's go on. Oh, yeah, we have. Is, is it right if we touch on just like a couple verses in chapter three that I, I really like? Of course, of course. I've got a few here myself in chapter three. Let me, um, no, we just finished that one. Uh, yeah, chapter three. Uh, in general, <clears throat> there's a section in there between verses three and 13 yeah. where it talks about the Lord coming. And I have wondered as I've read this in the past. Uh, if this is not one of the passages in your Old Testament that was used by the, 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 the Jewish kingdom in the days of Christ to justify them looking for a military Messiah who would come mm -hmm. in and destroy their enemies and set up the, the kingdom of the Lord there mm -hmm. in the land of Israel, because it's very militant here. We believe that is going to happen eventually. There will be a militant, I don't know why, militant is probably the wrong word. There will be a triumphal uh, coming of the Savior uh, at the second coming this time. It's not going to be, he's not going to be meek and lowly as he was the first time he came. And I think this chapter here in part is talking about that, but was misinterpreted to be applied to this, to the Messiah's first coming mm -hmm. here. <clears throat> uh, Carrie, you were going to say something about this part too. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to, well, one of the verses I really love is uh, verse 2, where it says, O Lord, I've heard thy speech and was afraid. So there is an element, and we sometimes forget that. There is an element in the majesty of God that strikes awe in us, 
and that becomes awful, right? I mean, and awesome. They're, they're, they're not actually dissimilar words. It should strike some awe and thus some fear into us. But then look at the next part. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years, make known. So we'd like to see your great work happening again. And then this last line, in wrath, remember mercy. And I find that interesting because it's one of the things, and we've even seen it already as we've been going through uh, Nahum and Habakkuk, that you so often get prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Nahum, Habakkuk, in the midst of their talking about the, the judgments that are going to come in, they always hold out little things like, oh, the just man will live by faith, right? Or, uh, but woe unto the wicked, it would be poor for him, but but the righteous will be redeemed, right? And and so on. Uh, they always hold out, they, they do, God does remember his mercy, even in, in the midst of his wrath. He remembers mercy and extends it wherever he can. Uh, he, he has to have some judgment that he comes out, and usually that's in the form of trying to humble people so they'll come back to him. But even then, he reaches out in mercy and extend, it preserves a remnant is another way of talking about it and so on. But uh, I just like that verse because we see the prophets doing that exact thing so often, remembering mercy in the midst of their, their teachings about wrath. I think there's a, a perversion in the world. I'm glad it's we don't see it very much in the Restoration and that uh, God is a wrathful God, just, just waiting for somebody to mess up so he can come down yeah. on them hard. I think it's the... The Old Testament teaches me it's just the opposite. Yes. He's constantly there trying to bless them and lift them up and help them if they would just turn to him. Yeah. yeah. All you got to do is turn to him. And, and that's, that's what he pleads well. again and again. Turn to me or return to me. He pleads for that so often. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a passage that we sometimes overlook in, in Ether, chapter 12. The famous verse is, uh, is uh, 27, but 28 says something like, I give unto men weakness, and I, I, I give unto them faith, hope, and charity, along with the weakness, so that they will come unto me. Mm -hmm. And if they come unto me, I am the fountain of all righteousness. He is waiting there, saying, please come unto me. Please humble yourself, and when you do, I am the fountain of righteousness, and I will feed you the living waters. And, and I see that everywhere in the Old Testament, not expressed quite the same way as it is in the Book of Mormon. But he is there in wrath, remember mercy. That's Habakkuk's prayer. Maybe he didn't even have to say that because that's the way the Lord is. He's yeah. constantly yeah. looking for a way to show mercy and kindness to us in the Old Testament. And, and knowing that leads us to expressions like the last two verses in Habakkuk, where at verse 18 and 19 of, of chapter 3, where he says, Yet will I rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds feet. So he's going to be fast like a deer, and he will make me walk upon my mine high places to the chief singer. And that's, so that this next part's about it being a music, because this last bit's kind of a, a hymn or a psalm. So you've got a little musical notation in there. But the, the great thing is there is be the ability to rejoice in the Lord and have joy in His the salvation he brings and the strength that he brings, which we can do. I mean, we're all going to mess up. So if he isn't a God of mercy, then we can just expect nothing but wrath. But because he is a God of mercy and is so willing to extend mercy however many times we stray, he will extend it then we can rely on his strength and have joy and, and peace as he talks about there.
Yes, absolutely. And let me point out, uh, going back to verse 13 for a second or two, mm -hmm. in, in, in uh, chapter 3 of uh, Habakkuk, mm -hmm. where he's talking actually to the Lord there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and this thou, hymn to the Lord, right? Yes. Thou, that is Jehovah, wentest forth for the salvation of thy people. Um, he, he's playing with some words there. I wish we could get the... Uh, it would be a real joy if people could read the Hebrew there because the word for salvation there, it's an unusual word in, in the Hebrew text. And it's pronounced uh, yesha mm. from the word for, for salvation and savior. And, and it, it almost sounds like Jesus without the Greek ending. Yesha. Right. Well, and it, I mean, I think Jesus's name is related to that word. So, oh, I am absolutely. I think it really comes from um, Isaiah fifty-two seven. There, um, thy, where at the end of verse seven it says, um, "Thy God reigneth." Uh, it, <clears throat> the word there is very close to the Greek version of Jesus, but anyway, in the Hebrew that is. But here, thou goest forth for the salvation of thy people for the for the saving of thy people, even for yeah. the salvation of thine anointed. Now, one of the variants in the Hebrew text is there, even for the salvation of his anointed. Mm. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation unto the neck. The Lord, through the salvation, is going to work the salvation of his people. And by the way, this is one of the few places in the Old Testament where the word Messiah occurs yeah. here in the book of Habakkuk. There near the end of that uh, that first strophe, uh, for the salvation of thine anointed, uh, for the salvation of thine, of thy Messiah, yes. Uh, there are little hints like that throughout the Old Testament, and I love it when these three writers here slip those into the text in the midst of some of the other nasty things that are going on. Yeah, it shows to me that these people had a really good understanding and were anxious and eager to try and help his people understand. What, what's really going on here? Well, that's Habakkuk. Are we ready to go on to Zephaniah? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, he also, as around that same time period as the other two, either a little before or a little bit after Jeremiah, it's hard to pin them down because sometimes they don't give very much information about uh, the times in which they're living. Yeah, Zephaniah uh, is the only one of these three that gives us a pretty good uh, idea because it says he's he's alive so he's what a uh, a great great grandson of hezekiah which means he's like a second or third cousin of josiah and he's he's during the days of josiah so he's the the only one we can pin down very well at all yes yeah if you think that the hezekiah I mentioned there is the king hezekiah yeah and, and he may not most, be but yeah most of the scholars think that it is hezekiah and that would be nice if he's the the the, the great Great, did you say, grandson? Yeah. Yes, great-grandson of Hezekiah. That would be nice. Yeah, yeah. he's uh, the only Hezekiah name, we know of from that time period, but I'm sure there are plenty of people with lots of names that we don't know about, so it's possible it's someone else. Yes. Uh, his name, Zephaniah, uh, is a little bit puzzling, too. Uh, it can mean Jehovah has hidden, set it aside, kind of put it yeah. uh, for safekeeping somewhere. It could also, uh, there is uh, deities who are involved with the word tzapon, which is the 
word there in the, uh, at the beginning of Zephaniah in the Hebrew that means north, but it also it refers to the deity who lives up north. Yeah. Uh, Canaanite Baal was uh, pictured in some Canaanite society as living on a mountain up north off of Canaan. And yeah. So some people want to see this related to um, this Canaanite god. I don't buy any of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, the, the name probably means Jehovah has hidden. And I yeah. want to point out here uh, in Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3, there may be a play uh, of words going on here in, Jeff, in chapter in verse 3. No, yes, in verse 3. Seek ye the Lord. Please, people, you know, go go after Jehovah. Find him and, and worship him and be true and faithful to him and things will go better for you. Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth which have wrought his judgment, those people who have been keeping his laws and his commandments. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. Mm -hmm. The word hid there in the Hebrew text is not the one that's in the word for Zephaniah, but it also means to hide there. So it may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. When things really begin to get bad, and they're going to get bad uh, uh, afterwards, um, if you are meek and and seek meekness and have followed the, uh, the Lord Jehovah in your day, it may be that he will sequester you out of the troubles that are going to bother everyone on the day of the Lord's anger. Yeah. But I'd like to read into this a second meaning because often, and I'm sure your guests have talked about this before, many prophecies have multiple fulfillments. Yeah. And I suspect if I'm reading this one correctly, it has a second, maybe third or fourth fulfillment. But uh, he's talking to the house of Israel here, uh, mostly the kingdom of Judah, and saying, if you'll just seek judgment and righteousness and be one of the meek of the earth, the Lord may sequester you away and protect you from all of the follies and stupid and evil things that are going on in the days in which you're living. I would like to think that um, this is a long-term prophecy, not just one with multiple fulfillments. But as we know in the, in the Restoration, the House of Israel has been scattered throughout all of the world. And in one sense, have been sequestered away from the world by being scattered throughout all of the world. Your patriarchal uh, blessing will tell you which part of the house of Israel you are assigned to. And all those years, even though you probably can't trace yourself back to the days of Zephaniah, you are of the house of Israel. And you have been sequestered these 2,000 or more years. And the Lord has protected you so that you could come forth in these latter days out of that sequestering. And bring forth the restoration of the gospel. Uh, yeah. I love I, I, how these. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I really like that because when you think about, say, the, the Book of Mormon peoples, right? They, they seem to be hidden. They're taking, okay, we're going to take you away from this group and we're going to hide you over here. And then when the Savior comes, he says to them, Yeah, actually, I didn't even tell my apostles over there. If they'd asked, maybe I would have, but, but really, I'm hiding you. And I've got to tell you, I've got others. I've got other members of the House of Israel that are hidden that I've got to go visit. So I think there's really something to, to that. 
And that's what makes me like the the interpretation of his name of his name, Zephaniah, as Jehovah has hidden. Yeah. He has sequestered the house of Israel all over the world. And it's our business now to gather that Israel up and bring them on into the restoration. To bring them home again, actually. Yeah. To unsequester them. Yeah, and, and, and bring them home. I agree. And I think that there's another possible, and maybe I'm making too much of this, but another possible uh Kind of a third meaning or a second meaning of the first meaning, maybe uh, the, the one about hiding them in the times of trouble, right? And I like that 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 idea of hiding, even though it's a different word, see, it does seem to be a play on Zephaniah's name. Uh, if we're right in thinking that the most likely one is hiding, and and I agree with that, because when I think of of uh, if you've got a small group and he's coming out in wrath, but you're going to hide someone, then then you're going to cover them, right? And of course, the word for covering is, if, or to cover someone is kippur, which is is the word we translate as atonement. Uh, and and so I, I feel like there's a an interesting little play in there on on the idea of hiding and Zephaniah's name as well. Just this idea uh, when when God comes out in wrath, He's going to cover us. Don't worry. And 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 we say it that way in English sometimes. Don't worry, I've got you covered. Uh, every yes. everyone else is in trouble, but I've got you covered. Uh, or I've got you Kippur, I've got you atoned for, and it's going to be okay for you. And and uh, so I, I think there are a number of little plays going on there. Absolutely. I want to point out another thing, too, uh, here that, that, that Zephaniah is doing in verse 2, uh, chapter 1, actually, verse 2. Uh, let me see. No, 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 no. It's uh, 2 and 3, actually. I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. In other mm -hmm. words, he's going to make the earth like before the creation of animals and people. It's going to be empty, right? That's the hint there anyway. But I want you to notice what he says in the next verse. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heathen and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks of the wicked. And I will cut off man from the land, saith the Lord. He's actually taking the creation account and reversing it. Yeah. He says, I am going to reverse the creation. I'm going to I'm going to get rid of uh, um, the fowls and the fishes and the animals and all of that thing. And the last of all, I'm going to cut man off in the land from the land. The last creation is the last thing that he's going to cut off, too. Uh, I, I, Zephaniah is playing with the scriptures here in a delightful way. Yeah. And, and we're reminding us, he, God is the one who created everything that we see that he mentions in that verse. And he's the one who can reverse it, reverse it if he needs to. If people stop their, their shenanigans, he will, yeah. he, will, he will fix things for them. Yes. Yeah, he'll hit the undo button, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I want to point out another thing in there. By the way, stop me at any time, Carrie, if I, if I go past something that you want to talk about. But in chapter 2, verse 15... Um, this is the rejoicing. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt carelessly, talking about uh, Nineveh. Uh, if, if I'm reading it, remembering it right. Yeah, I think uh, so. The city um, that said in her heart. By the way, it says her heart there because uh, in Hebrew and most ancient languages, the word for city was feminine, and so it's not that that. Um, he's speaking of cities as being a female, but they actually, that was how they were pictured in those days. If they wanted to do a, a picture of a city, 
they would picture a woman and put a crown on her head that was in the shape of a city wall. And that was how they would uh, envision um, in, in a metaphor type, uh, symbol, symbolism type, a city. So when it says here, that said in her heart, that is this wicked city, not because she's female, but because she's wicked. <laughs> I am, and there is none beside me. And when I read that a, a couple of weeks ago, it just struck me so hard. What I what Zephaniah is doing there is is somewhat paraphrasing some other places in the Old Testament, in yeah. particular Deuteronomy four thirty five, where it says, "The Lord He is God, and there is none else beside Him." And we all know that the that the Jehovah comes from Yahweh, meaning He exists or He is. And I'm wondering here. I checked the Hebrew here; it didn't quite pan out as nice as I wished it had it. But um, when when she says in her heart, "I am," what she's doing is saying the same thing that said in Exodus, where yeah. they ask, "What is your what's my name? What is your name?" And God says, "I am." And I think uh, Zephaniah is playing off of that here. And there is none beside him, which again comes from Deuteronomy 4.35. There is none else beside him. Assyria has set herself up as equal to God. Yep. And he's doing this in such a beautiful Hebrew way of saying it that I don't think anybody can really miss it who's reading the text here with that Hebrew background. Yeah. And that's and, why and it's interesting. If you remember back when we... Uh, read in Isaiah or in the Second Kings account, uh, when uh, Sennacherib sent his representatives up to Jerusalem to taunt the people to try and get them to capitulate. And the thing he was saying is, what, you think Jehovah can save you? No, no gods have been saving anyone from the Assyrians. We're not afraid of Jehovah. No one can stand. We're the only ones who are, are really have power and everyone else falls. And so I mean, we know they actually said these kinds of things that, that uh, Zephaniah is referring to here in verse 15. It, it's completely accurate. But as you said, he brings in uh, not what they said, but what God has said to highlight how much they've put themselves in the place of God. Yes. <laughs> and usually, as soon as you do that, the Lord kind of figures out a way to humble you a bit. Yeah. And the Syrians really got double doses of that. Okay, uh, uh, I'm going to go into verse, chapter 3 now, if you want to cover in one or two. Nope. Uh, we're good. All right, chapter 3, we get a lot of destruction going on here, and I've been skipping most of it here. I think most of it's pretty boring, and it's nasty stuff, and it's a little bit depressing. That's yeah. why I'm trying to highlight some of the positive statements. Yeah, because these can be kind of downer books. Yeah. So in, in chapter three, verses one through seven, he's going to destroy all those nations. And, um, and in chapters, uh, verses eight through 11 of, of chapter three, he, not only that, but he's going to gather lots of nations together so he can destroy them all together yeah. uh, as, as one group. But in the midst of that, of that gathering, look at verse nine. I think this is talking about the restoration in the latter days. When he's gathered them out in his fierce anger, and the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy, verse 9. For then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. 
I think, I don't know anywhere where we have a more common language than in the restoration of the gospel. And I'm not talking about English. I'm talking about the, the language of the restoration. Mm. It, it doesn't matter where you go in the world. You go to a sacrament meeting or a priesthood meeting or a religious study, the language is all the same. And depending on the people who are involved, it's pure too. It's a wonderful prophecy here about the restoration and what things are going to be like in these latter days. And I rejoice in that. Having traveled around the world a little bit, uh, it's so comforting to know that everywhere you go almost, there is a group of people who speak a pure language yeah. and who are just as committed to the God of the Old Testament as we are. Agreed. Along with Zephaniah. And the people who are going to do that are described as a poor and humble remnant in verse 12. Well, I don't know about your ancestors, but that's mine, poor and humble. Yeah. Yeah. This, this, they, just about anyone in the church somewhere has a poor and humble ancestor, right? Um, that's who joins. Yes. And in verse 19, he's talking again about the restoration of the house of Israel. And I think there's a beautiful image here, too. At that time, at the time of the restoration... I will undo all that afflict thee, and I will save her that halteth, and gathereth her that has, was driven away. And he's using the imagery here again that uh, Ezekiel uses in 16, and that permeates the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Doctrine and Covenants, everywhere except the Book of Mormon. Maybe if somebody knows some passages in the Book of Mormon that play off of Ezekiel 16, I would really appreciate learning about it. But anyway, the, the playing off of this, that Zion is, is his bride. And there's, yeah. that's why he's using these female adjectives here. I will undo all that afflict thee, Zion, and I will save Zion that halteth, and gather her that was driven out, and I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. Uh, this I, I am convinced that this also has multiple prophecies here, or, or fulfillments. Um, I think it applies, of course, to the Restoration and the, and the Latter-day Saints, that uh, in every place where we're at, we will be blessed by the Lord, even though we've been put to shame by some people. Mm. I also think it's talking about um, the gathering of the House of Israel in the latter days, not to the, to the kingdom, but to the land of Israel, that the Jews everywhere in their scattering have blessed every country where they've been and that they will in every land where they have been put to shame be given honor and and respect uh, after all we're all house of israel mm -hmm. and i think Zephaniah realized that and was speaking in terms that applies to all of us in the house of israel well, this has been an exciting time for me, Carrie, and I thank you for the invitation to join you in this. Um, I, I must confess, I have not studied these books as closely as I should have. I've taught Old Testament a number of times, and uh, it's hard to get it all in yeah. in one semester. We ought to have a four-semester course on the Old Testament. Yes, we and, should. And a two-semester course on Isaiah alone. Yes, yes. <laughs> and then probably a one-semester course on the book of Genesis. There's enough there. Yeah. More than that. But uh, it's been wonderful and exciting for me to get into this. And I just 
I'm so grateful for these brethren, Zephaniah and, and Habakkuk and Nahum, in these very difficult times of the Old Testament, when so many terrible things were happening. And I, am, I, I rejoice in their faithfulness and in their understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful for them. I think we ought to thank the Lord for these brethren tonight. I agree. In fact, I was just about to say, I, I, the, over the course of this year, and I've studied the Old Testament plenty, uh, but as we've really gotten into it and come follow me this year, I found myself, without premeditation, most mornings in my prayers, praying to thank the Lord for prophets ancient and modern. Uh, I've just come to appreciate these these great prophets so much more, and it helps me appreciate our current prophets more as well, understanding the, the shared role that they play. But I am so grateful for these men that work so hard, and uh, I bless my life, even though they lived so long ago, they, they, they bless my life today and tonight as we've been talking about this together. So thank you as well. I'm grateful for you for, for helping me and, and all of our audience with that. Let me just say one more thing, too, and this has nothing to do with these three books, directly anyway. Uh, I've been serving a, as a temple worker for a good number of years in the temple, and I have rejoiced this year in reading the Old Testament because there are some things about the current temple ceremony in our restoration that are actually explained in the Old Testament if you're paying attention. Yeah. And I have just been delighted to find those parts of the Old Testament that helped to, to teach me about the temple ceremony. I agree. I agree. I think we can actually come to understand the temple better in, in the Old Testament than just about anywhere else. But, uh, well, thank you, Paul, so much. This has just been a pleasure for me, and I'm sure for uh, the audience as well. And we hope that it, it blesses them. And if they can think of someone else that would be blessed by it, that they'll share it with them. But but thank you very much. Tell your wonderful wife hi for me. And, uh, and, and we hope that everyone listening has a, a great week studying the words of these fantastic prophets. Yes, amen. <laughs>